seated. We continue our sermon series in the book of Exodus. Today I will be reading from chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. So if you'd like to follow along with me, you may find that in your Bibles. I'm at chapter 6. I'll begin with verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will, not, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But, my name, but, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians were enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with my outstretched arm and with my mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Egyptians go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. Let's pray. God and Father, as we sit now under your word, I pray that you would speak to us through it, that you would guide our steps as we walk in it, that you would be with us sinners as we sit under its authority. Be with me, a sinner, as I seek to preach it. Let us rest on Jesus Christ. Amen. So I remember growing up, my, my father taught at a trade school, a vocational school, and I would go hang out at the school sometimes in the little town where we lived. And at that school, there was this construction program. He didn't teach in it, but there was this construction program. And every year, they would build a house as part of this program. They had, like, this foundation out kind of behind the school, and they would build a whole house up on it. And at the end of the year, someone would buy it, and they'd, like, move it off, and someone would actually live in it. In retrospect, I actually have no idea who would buy those houses, right? Like, like this, telling someone, like, a bunch of 19 and 20-year-olds built this thing, you know, I mean— like, maybe, I mean, maybe it was, like, one of their parents or something. I don't know. But even then, I mean, I would, like, hang my kids' artwork on the wall, but I don't think I'd let them do my wiring. But, but anyway, what I remember as a kid was I would go visit Dad, and I would see this house, and what was cool about it was that I loved just watching it take shape over time. And so you'd see it initially, and there'd just be a couple of, like, framed-out walls that were hung up. And I'd look at that, and I'd try to, like, imagine how the house was going to look. 
And then over time, you would see they'd put on siding and drywall and, you know, and roofing and fill everything out. And when I looked at it when it was done, it was always interesting because in some ways it was totally different than what I pictured. But in other ways, especially as I did this over the years, I kind of got a sense of like, oh, this is what the house is going to look like. I could see the shape of the thing even in those earliest studded out load-bearing walls. Throughout the book of Exodus, we have stressed that that, in a sense, is how the Bible works. That as you read the Bible, it's almost like watching that house getting built. It tells this story that unfolds over time and develops and grows. But the core of that story, the frame of it, it stays the same throughout the Bible's narrative. Even back here in Exodus near the beginning, we can trace the outlines of those studs and joints and walls that end up forming this full story. And I think that's especially true of our text for this morning. Last week, if you were with us, we ended the sermon with this sense that God is on the move and we should expect to see God moving and at work in the world. And this text is really the foundation for how we understand that work in the whole Bible. Now, God has been at work even before this Exodus 6 text, right? And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and preserving Israel and calling Moses. But in this passage is where God really outlines his plan for the salvation of Israel. And that's really then the framework that the rest of the Bible uses to outline God's plan of salvation for the world. These are those first walls that are being erected. And while things are added to them and built onto them, in many ways, this is where we find its shape. So what I want to do this morning is first just focus in on verses 6 through 8 of the passage that we read. Because that's where we, really where we get this framework laid out. So we're going to focus in there. And then after we do that, I want to zoom out and talk a little bit about how we live into this. But first, I want to look at those three verses and see the framework of salvation that they're beginning to build. The first thing we see in those three verses is a deliverance. God promises deliverance. So verse 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and with mighty acts of judgment. So this is God's promise to bring Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And if you look at it, there's really three different promises, three parts of it. First, God promises deliverance from the burden of slavery. The burden of slavery. So he describes the yoke of the Egyptians. And if you aren't familiar with that term, a yoke is what you used to put on like a cow or an ox. And it would be this thing that would, it would pull against to drag a weight behind it. So God's promising that the burden of slavery on Israel's back will be lifted. The suffering and the consequences of their enslavement will be lifted. More than that, though, God also promises a deliverance from the bondage of slavery itself. From, from the slavery, he says, I will free you from being slaves to them. So it's not just that things aren't going to be heavy, but they're actually going to be set free and then he says that the way he will do that is by redeeming Israel. That deliverance will come by redemption. That word redeem, it means to buy back. God somehow is saying, I'm going to purchase you from Egypt. Purchase you for myself. 
And within Exodus here, that's kind of used as an analogy, right? God's not literally like sitting down with Pharaoh and paying him or something. But that's the image he's using, that I'm going to pay for you to purchase your freedom. So this is part of that structure, we said, for what God is doing in the world. It's the beginning of his great work of salvation. And that whole work of salvation, just like this beginning here in Israel, is always founded on God's deliverance. Israel's captivity in Egypt, as the Bible continues, becomes a picture for our captivity to sin. So take the words of Jesus, for example, in John 8. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and it says that he answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So in Scripture, sin is not just viewed as these, like, individual bad things that we do. Sin is viewed as this life of bondage. And we might not feel like that's true, but that's actually the point Jesus is making. Well, that, that in John 8 there, he's talking to these people, and he says, we're, we're slaves, and they say, no, we're not slaves. What are you talking about? And then his response is, no, we are slaves to sin. Which is to say, we are all serving something in this life. All of us are. Maybe it is our egos and need to feel powerful. Maybe it's the approval and praise of other people. Maybe it's our desire for security and feeling like we're in control. But all of us ultimately are seeking to serve something. And whatever that thing is, if it isn't God, Scripture would say that we end up being in slavery to that thing. None of us is truly free. We all like to think of ourselves as, oh yeah, we're just free, we're just doing what we want. But all of us are bound by those desires. Like if if I'm seeking the approval and praise of other people, if that is the desire that drives my life, um, then, then these are the tasks that are the slavery to that desire, right? It is the hours of time that I spend in front of the mirror. This is clearly, I spend hours in front of the mirror, but right? You know, the hours of time that I'm spending, you know, trying to look beautiful. And it's the the thousands and tens of thousands of dollars I spend trying to have nice enough clothes and a nice enough car and house for people to look at me and admire me. And it is the lies that I tell to people in order to make myself look better and happier than I am. And it's the people that I tear down and destroy with my words in order to elevate myself in comparison to them. All of those things that I'm doing, right, they feel like just free choices, but really that's just me building, it's building the pyramids to that thing that has me enslaved. And all sin works like that. We feel like we're just doing what we want, but really we're slaves to those desires. And so part of what God is doing in his framework of salvation is setting us free from that bondage. He does that in the work of Jesus. If you were with us during Romans, you might remember that Paul talks about this exact idea. Like in Romans 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved by sin. So in the cross, Jesus is setting us free from sin. And it includes all those elements that we talked about back here in Exodus. He sets us free from the burden of sin. Which is to say that as we live our lives in service to these desires, we end up hurting people. And hurting ourselves. And there is a real guilt that we carry because of the ways that we've hurt people. And there is a real shame that we feel for some of the things we have done. 
And those are the burdens of our slavery. But what Jesus offers us is a forgiveness that covers our guilt. And a righteousness that covers that shame and sets them free from them. And more than that, that Jesus sets us free from the bondage of sin itself. He breaks our slavery to sin. Not that we still don't struggle with sin, right? Not that we still aren't tempted, but that now in Scripture there's two forces that are at work in us. That there's still those sinful desires that are pulling on our hearts, but there's also the Holy Spirit at work pulling us in another direction. We are able to live in a way, to walk another path, because God is at work in us, drawing us to be the sorts of creatures we're created to be. And he does all of that. By redeeming us in Jesus. By paying to purchase us from our slavery. The New Testament picks up that language in places like Ephesians 1. Where it says that in Jesus we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's the same language of redemption, right? Except now what's being paid is the blood of Jesus. That somehow, as Jesus dies on the cross, that is actually the price that purchases our freedom. So in Jesus, God is working that deliverance for us. And Israel's deliverance is the beginning of that. It's a foretaste of that deliverance that God is working. We're going to talk more in just a minute about how we live out of this, like we said. But first, let's keep going, though, because that's only the first piece of this story that um, God is telling God isn't just delivering us from our sin. He's also entering into a new relationship with us. That's the second thing we see in, in Exodus 6, a new relationship. So if you look at verse 7, God is continuing to speak. He says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So God is not just promising that, that Israel is going to get out of Egypt, but he's promising to take Israel as his own people, to change who they are in relation to him. That actually happens a little bit later in Exodus. Israel comes out of Egypt, spoilers, I'm sorry, um, and is brought to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God comes down and he makes this covenant with Israel, a covenant, a set of promises that create a relationship. And he says this, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So he's speaking a couple of things at once. He's saying first that Israel, you have a new purpose. There's this new purpose you have. You're being called to obey God and keep his covenant and you're called to do that because you're meant to show forth God to the world. That's that language of a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're supposed to be like the priests to the rest of the world, showing God forth to them. You're supposed to be a nation set apart that people can look at and see God's goodness. They have a new purpose, and they also have a new relationship with each other in what God is doing here. That's easy to miss when we, when we read these verses, I think, in our modern world. But they're being formed as a people, right? Not just as individual persons, but they're becoming a nation, a kingdom, a community of people that are being gathered together as God's people. But both of those things rest on the fact that they're being given a new relationship with God. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled, humanity has been separate from God. 
um, even opposed to God. But by redeeming Israel, what God is doing is reestablishing this people in relationship with himself. We're meant to hear intimacy in the words that we read in this text. I will take you as my own people. I will be your own God. That we're joined to each other and given purpose because we are being joined to God. I mean, why do you think God saves us? I think that's actually a question that we sometimes in the church haven't done a good job of answering. We talk a lot about getting saved, and we put a lot of emphasis just on the getting saved. Um, And that's important, right? That's the deliverance stuff that we just talked about. But what is the point of that? I mean, why is that happening? I mean, yeah, so we would say, like, well, it's happening because God loves us. And that, that's true, right? That's true and good. But that doesn't really give me any sense of, like, what that's supposed to mean for me. Um, or we talk about, you know, it's so I can go to heaven and not hell when I die. And again, that's true, and that's good. But that doesn't give me any sense of, like, what does that mean for my life in the world? The Bible's answer to that question is that God saved us from something and to something. And we need both sides of that to understand its story. God saves us from sin and slavery, but God saves us to a new relationship with him. That the point, in a sense, of our salvation is to draw us into that new relationship. This is the Apostle Peter. He's talking to the church, and he says, here's what it means sort of to be a Christian and to come out of the world. In 1 Peter 2, he says, but you, Christians, are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Does that language sound familiar to you? I mean, Peter's taking all those terms that we just saw here in Exodus and applying them to us as God's people. That just like Israel, we are, we are a chosen people. We're this priesthood. We are a holy nation, and we are God's special possession. Peter even goes further, saying that the purpose of all this is so that we might declare, to proclaim, and show forth the praises of this God who saved us. And so when we're thinking about being a Christian, all of those things we just talked about Israel apply to us as well. Becoming a Christian means embracing a new purpose. You don't join God's kingdom without, in a sense, having a sense that you're following the king. When we embrace Jesus... We experience his love and grace, but we're also being called to take up his cross and follow after him. And likewise, to become a Christian means joining a new people. That when we enter into relationship with God, we're also entering into this relationship with each other, with this community of people that God is saving us. And we don't get to choose who that is, right? We don't get to choose who God chooses to save. We're called to be a part of this community of faith, But both of those things are true because ultimately we are being called to experience our relationship with God in the present. To experience our relationship with God right now. You don't measure spiritual life by whether you got saved once, whether you got born again once. You measure it by whether you are alive and living with God today. That is to say that God wants to be with us and speak with us from his word. And listen and speak to us in prayer and move by his Holy Spirit. We're called to actually live out that relationship in our lives. Again, we're going to talk in just a minute about what that means. 
But there's one more piece of this framework of salvation in Exodus that I want us to add first. And that is that God's, um, God delivers us, God enters into a relationship with us, and then he also promises an inheritance. An inheritance. So if you look at verse 8 from, Re- from Exodus 6, he says, And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hands to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So part of God's promise to Abraham is this promised land, this, this you know, the specific area, Canaan, um, that, that he's going to inherit. And Israel is brought out of Egypt, and they wander in the desert, and then ultimately they're brought in to that promised land. And that theme of an inheritance continues through the Bible, too. But just like the other two, it expands over time. And I think this one we need to really pay attention to because we can kind of miss the expansion in the way we tell it. But so it starts very focused on Canaan, right, on this specific area. But then it begins to broaden. So, for example, in the Psalms and the Prophets, there are lots of promises like this one that provoked a lot of discussion among ancient rabbis. In Psalm 37, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. And what what provoked that discussion is in Psalm 37, it discusses the righteous and the wicked in terms of the whole earth, right? And those following God and those who are opposed to him. And that word for land is, um, the the, the Hebrew word is the same for the, the earth, right? And so people are discussing, is this about like Israel and this specific promised land, or is this about something bigger? And sometimes in the Old Testament, it, it, it seems explicitly to be about something bigger. So in Psalm 2, for example, David is being celebrated as Israel's king, um, and the psalm is sort of about him, but it sort of also anticipates this coming Messiah, this king that follows in David. And there it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, meaning the king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession, right? So now this heritage, this inheritance isn't, it's about the world. It's about the whole earth. The New Testament picks up on that theme too. It's why Jesus is actually, he actually echoes the words of Psalm 37 that we read when he famously says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. It's why Paul He discusses God's promise to Abraham, but this is how he puts it. He says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Right? You see, Paul's looking back at that promise to Abraham, but he's expanding it. So now it's the whole world that's somehow what's being promised. For that to make sense, we need to just zoom out for a minute and talk about the way that something about the Bible— Um, And how it discusses the end of this story. And this is something we've discussed before, so I know it might be familiar to some of you. But it's also something that so many people just seem unfamiliar with or to have never processed through. Which is that when, when most people tell the story of Christianity, right, they tell it as like, well, I'm alive and I'm a Christian. And then I die and then I go to heaven. The end. And... That's true. That part's true, but the end part is not, right? In, in Scripture, the way the story works is we're alive and we die, and then our souls are united with Christ in heaven. And that's a sweet and beautiful thing. We're at rest, and there's peace there, and we're with God. But that's not the end of the story, because then Jesus comes back to earth. 
and heaven is pictured as descending to earth, and there's the resurrection of the dead, and our bodies are raised, and the earth is made new, and everything broken and dark in it is purged, and then we live there with God forever, here, right, on this new heavens and new earth, which is to say that in the Bible story, God's people inherit the earth, which is what it's promised all along. You think about how Exodus describes the promised land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, a land heavy with grain and prosperity, a land of peace and flourishing. And when that language is applied to the actual promised land at the end of Deuteronomy, when Israel comes into it, um, I mean, that land is great, right? Um, It certainly beats the desert that they've been in, but it's also hyperbole, right? There's not like literally, you know, flowing with milk and honey. That seems like poetic overstatement. But that's because Canaan, that promised land, has always stood for something bigger than just that historical thing that happened. That's why we named our our oldest son Canaan. It's always stood for that inheritance, that new heavens and new earth that God has ultimately promised for us. It actually, that, that, that idea shoots through a lot of old hymns and poems of Christianity. We introduced last week, and we're going to sing in just a minute, this old hymn text with a new melody, but it starts, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. Right? That's not talking, that's talking about our inher- eternal inheritance. Or in the Pilgrim's Progress, at the end of it, when Christian and, um, and hopeful come to the end of their journey, right? They're standing on, this, on the edge of this river, which is death, and is the river Jordan, and beyond it is this promised land, which is the celestial city, right? Their eternal inheritance, and they recognize that it's in passing through that river into that land that they come into what they've gotten, which is to say that is where we are headed. So that then, with what we've said before, that's the framework of salvation, framework of the story that God tells throughout scriptures, that God is working a deliverance to bring us out of bondage to sin, and he enters into a new relationship with us that gives us new purpose in life, and he's ultimately bringing us to this eternal inheritance. That's the story. And in the rest of the time we have this morning, I just want to suggest that we need to live like that is true. We need to start living more like that is true. There's something really striking in in Exodus 6 here. So Moses comes and he proclaims this glorious work of God's salvation. And then in verse 9, look how Israel responds. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Israel seems unable to hear the hope of this story because their slavery and the opposition of Pharaoh has worn them down. And I think that that is what so easily happens to us. We live like Israel in that way, discouraged and weary and therefore unable to believe that this is the story that we're actually in. So here's the thing to recognize. If that's the story God is telling, we aren't at the end of the story yet. Um, if, If you think about where we fit, right, into this kind of like framework of a story that God is telling, we are in the the wilderness, right? That's, we're, we're like when Israel is wandering in the desert. We're not in slavery in Egypt anymore, but we're not in Canaan yet either. 
And that's what life is like in this world. That's how scripture pictures it. The author of Hebrews uses this kind of sojourning in between place to describe the life of faith. He's talking about these great heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, and he says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So that's where we are right now. We have gone out of that one country. We are not yet in the country that is our home. We're in between. And so we're supposed to be strangers and exiles on earth, living here but desiring the world to come. However, what happens is we let that season of wandering in the wilderness make us lose sight of the story that surrounds us. We get so used to the struggle and the desert that we miss what God has done and what God is doing and what God will ultimately do. God is delivering souls from bondage and bringing them into life and relationship with himself. He is doing that right now, and he has been doing that, and he will continue to do that. Um, He is drawing us into that relationship and giving us a mission and a purpose in the world, and he will return, and we will be welcomed into our internal inheritance. That is the story of the world. But when when I hear people, when I hear Christians talk about about our place and history and the world. That's not how they're talking, right? What I hear is the sort of pessimism and despair about our culture or our country or our world. And we all sound so defeated. We seem to think that everything is just going to be terrible. It's been terrible and it'll probably get worse and it'll stay terrible. And then maybe Jesus will come back at the end. And so we just live in fear and anxiety about the future and about the world. But that is not the story that we are in. That is not the world that we actually live in. God is moving in the world. I mean, you know who's afraid in the Bible story? Like, Satan is afraid. I mean, he's pictured as being terrified, right? I mean, and the church is pictured as this force that's marching forward until it batters down the gates of hell and he's defeated. And the powers of this age, Scripture says, they're, they're terrified. They might not name it, but deep down, when they see God at work, and they, they encounter these people who say, who say, you can kill my body, but my inheritance is in heaven, and you're no threat to that. They don't know what to do with that. And the justice and love of the gospel is a threat to their power. The world is afraid of the story that God is working in it. But our problem is that because of our sin and because we are blind to that reality, we do not live out of that story. We are convinced that we're in a story of defeat and despair and helplessness. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for us. It's like God, God says, here, here is the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith with which you can conquer the darkness in the world. And we like go in our houses and we, you know, we wedge the sword in the door to keep it shut. And we lean the shield against the window and we cower and we're like, you know, there's, there's darkness out there. And look, like nothing's defeating it. So we need to just stay in here and hide. Just to be clear in that, I'm, I know I'm using 
military imagery, right? I'm not saying we go, like, beat up people or something for the kingdom. The sword of the Spirit is the good news of God's love in Jesus Christ. And, you know, and the, the power that shatters the gates of hell is Christ-like love. But what I'm saying is go, go show that in the world. Go tell somebody that Jesus loves them and died and rose again for them. Go, go try to work real good in the world and, and serve and bless it. Go, um, don't raise your kids, right? Don't raise your kids in fear that maybe the devil's going to come and snatch them away. But raise them to go out boldly on that mission and to serve and bless the nations and share Jesus with them. God is on the move. That story is happening and we are being invited to join into that movement. And we can do that because of the other reality, which is God is the one carrying that mission to its completion. God is the one who will see that thing through. In the first few verses of this chapter, before what we looked at, God spends a bunch of time just identifying himself and who he is. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who's revealed himself as I am to Moses. And that actually shapes what we read. Go back to verse 6, which we just read. Um, it says, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. That's the declaration God starts with. And then he starts all these I statements, right? I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. And that continues, verse 7, and then it goes into verse 8. And I will bring you to the land, and I will give it to you as a possession. And he ends just like he began, I am the Lord. That story that we told of salvation and relationship and inheritance, we are invited into that, and we are called to participate in that. But it does not depend on us. That is God's story. And that is good news. As much as we can slip into that self-defeating kind of thinking, and it's important for us not to do that, I think sometimes the church tries to motivate us, tries to get us to go out in the world by telling us that all that stuff we said about God's victory depends on us. Um, if you aren't faithful, if you don't volunteer, if you don't take this list of actions we want you to take, then, then evil is going to win. And God won't be able to do what he says. Maybe he'll lose. I mean, they don't usually spell it out like that, right? <laughs> but so often, that's the rhetoric that the church has slipped into. And churches do that because in this short time, I think maybe that kind of works, right? If you're just trying to get people to volunteer or put some dollars in the offering plate or whatever, you can kind of use that rhetoric to scare them into it. But the cost of that is that it undermines our trust in God and his greatness. The foundation of our faith ends up getting eroded in the name of these kind of short-term gains. So here's the truth of things, friends. Um, in that bad story that churches tell that we said, you know, I mean, in that bad story, God is pictured as this, like, armchair general. And it's like, he's got this plan to save the world. He can't do it without you. Like, you got to go out and be the army and fight and, and win it for him. And if you don't, like, I don't know what's going to happen with that plan. But in, in the story of the Bible, God is not a general. He is the champion. 
He's like, like the champion, like in those old, like, like the Iliad or the Lord of the Rings or whatever, right? He, he rides out on his horse, and he is defeating the forces of evil. He, um, you know, he's, he's smashing them down, and he is unstoppable and indestructible. And from that position of triumph in front of us, he then calls to us as his people, charge, right? He then calls us to come join in this battle because he is the victorious champion. And so we join in, not because we're strong or necessary, but because we are invited to participate in this story that he is telling out of his strength. So if that's the story of the world, then the last question I have for us is just, are we going to join into this thing? For some of us, as we encounter that question, maybe that's just an invitation to take the first step into it. I mean, I know some of us probably haven't really experienced that deliverance that begins this thing for ourselves. And if that's you, I'd invite you just to move into it. Talk to me or just process it in your heart. But, um, but you are invited to experience that freedom from bondage and slavery. And for the rest of us, that means today that we're also being called to live into that story. To walk with God and seek to realize his purposes in the world born of that hope that he is at work, and he is moving, and he will triumph. That's ultimately our hope, that God will win in this thing, and we will at last be received into our true inheritance. On the far side, on the far side of the Jordan, is the earth made new, and and that land flowing with milk and honey, and God will bring us to that place, and God is at work in the world drawing people to that place. So we should stop living in that discouragement and slavery of Egypt and begin to walk forward in that story because God has delivered us and he is at work in us and he will bring us home because he is the Lord. Let's pray. God and Father, I give you thanks for the ways that you have moved and are continuing to move in our midst. And I just pray that you would give us hearts that believe that and walk forth in that. That so much of the defeat we feel is really just a product of the fact that we've assumed we are already defeated. So give us hearts the boldness of knowing that you are at work. Call us to walk into our lives in Christ-like love. Pray these things in his name. Amen.